Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. I was visiting with a dear friend a few days ago, and he asked me, where are you in the book of Romans? And I said, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. And he said, man, you weren't in chapter 2 very long, were you? I said, no, but chapter 3 is much, much different. We are able to breeze through chapter 2, but we are going to labor through chapter 3. You know, I said Merry Christmas to one of the children this morning. And this little girl had a bright smile on her face. And she said, that's Jesus' birthday. Isn't that refreshing? I mean, I, I wish that would spread throughout our culture. That we would truly recognize the meaning of Christmas. The greatest need of every sinner is the righteousness of God. That is what is on the the heart and the mind of Paul the Apostle in our passage this morning. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 24. In fact, if you look at the big picture, the, the, the broad sweep of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, you will realize that from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to 11 verse 36, which ends the doctrinal section of the book of Romans... That that whole section concerns the matter of God's righteousness. Last week we witnessed the Apostle Paul uh, pulling back the, the curtain as he revealed the righteousness of God in verse 21. You will recall that that word righteousness simply means conformity to a standard. In fact, Wayne Grudem says God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. And he himself is the standard of what is right. I love how Deuteronomy chapter 32 refers to the living God. It says the rock, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Do we not need a God who is a God of justice, a God who is upright in this age that we find ourselves living in? An age filled with duplicity and sin and unrighteousness. We can be rest assured that God is a God of righteousness. For some reason, today is kind of the the day I quote John Piper a lot. I quoted him a few times in our Veritas class, and I will quote him once again. Dr. Piper says, The righteousness of God is what God is when he saves you and what he gives you when he saves you. It is his unswerving commitment to preserve the honor of his name and display his glory. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says that the righteousness of God has been, you remember last week? It's been revealed. The righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, so says the Apostle Paul. Yet, we find that sinful human beings, they desperately try to earn the favor of God by obeying the law. They try to earn God's favor by being... Good people. You remember? I'm one of the good guys. We all do it. We, we try to be good. But the scripture is clear on this matter. Look at Romans chapter 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is, no one will stand in a proper relation to the living God. No one will be right in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so good works can never draw us into the presence of God. Good works in and of themselves have no power to justify us in the sight of a holy God. Titus 3.5 appropriately says that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Finally, 
we learn that this righteousness was anticipated by the law and prophets. And so this is a a unique thing we need to wrap our minds around that we learned in verse 21 that the righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. But Paul goes on to say that it's anticipated by the law and the prophets. This righteousness that is revealed is not something that God cooked up when Adam fell into sin. It has been a part of God's plan for all eternity. The righteousness of God would be revealed. And so the greatest need of every sinner is this. We need the righteousness of God. But as I said last week, as we look at verses 21, 22, 23, and 24... We need time to unpack the great reality that flows forth from these passages. Here are the four questions as we, as we seek to unpack these verses that we need to ask and also address. Number one, how do we receive the righteousness of God? If we can't do it by works, if we can't merit favor in the eyes of God, how do we do it? We'll look at that today. Number two. Who then can receive the righteousness of God? In the back of my mind is always the presupposition that when I preach, and it doesn't matter what the venue is, it could be Christ Fellowship, it could be another church, it could be a campground, it could be a youth group, wherever I have the opportunity to to open the Word of God and proclaim the Word of God, I always assume that there are non-believers in the room. The assumption is that there's always a non-believer in the room. And so if you're here this morning, you may wonder, how, how, how can it be that I will be included or will I be included? Can I be numbered among those who receive the righteousness of God? We'll deal with that today as well. Number three, on what basis can we receive the righteousness of God? A question that we will look at, uh, I believe, in two weeks Number four, by what means can we receive the righteousness of God? Those are the questions, the four questions that help us to to unpack the very important reality that surfaces in these verses. And so the word of God gives us clear and concrete answers to each of these questions. Would you stand to your feet as we read our passage once again? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. Paul the Apostle continues, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. What a a privilege it is, Father, to read these words, to embrace these words. What a privilege it is to, to speak, to declare the righteousness of God. We thank you that the righteousness of God has been revealed ever so clearly. And so today I pray that you would help us by the by the instrumentality of your spirit and your word to understand how we can receive it and who can receive it. May it be clear in every mind, both young and old. Uh, Lord, I pray that those who are followers of Jesus would be enriched and they would be encouraged and that they would marvel at the the great uh, mystery of grace that is theirs in Christ. For those who are not yet followers of Christ, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day when someone receives the righteousness, righteousness of God, free of charge, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the message is The Ground of Justification. And the message this morning, as I have already alluded to, will answer the first two questions that we just focused on. Namely, how do we receive the righteousness of God and who can receive the righteousness of God? We have already discovered the propensity of sinful creatures to, to climb the so-called ladder to God and merit favor in his sight by trying to do good works. Something that is always, always, always viewed by God as filthy rags. If you think about 
your garage or wherever you put your cleaning supplies or if you have a shed in the backyard and you have some old dirty rags. It seems like every home has some dirty rags. You think of the dirtiest rags, the smelliest, grossest rags that you can conceive of. That is what the Word of God says that your righteousness is like and my righteousness is like as we try to work our way to God. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. I want to remind you and really give you a series of reminders. And if it feels like I'm piling on, I am intentionally. Because we live in a a works-based culture. I personally feel like we live in a works-based community where many people in our community feel like if they're good. And by the way, I hear it all the time. My, my, my question I pose to people is, if you are to die this afternoon, if you have a massive heart attack, if you got hit by a Mack truck, if you drown in the river, why would God let you into heaven? You would be shocked at the number of times people say, well, I was a good person. I was a good person. Every person that responds in that fashion will hear these words, depart from me. I never knew you. And so let me give you a series of reminders. Number one, that once again, good works will never, never, never get you into heaven. I made reference this morning in Veritas to presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg, who is ready for judgment day. I don't know if you read this article a few days ago. He's ready for judgment day. Quote, you can't make this stuff up. Quote, I am telling you, if there is a God, that's always a bad way to begin, right? If there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in, he told reporter Jeremy Peters. Bloomberg continues, I have earned my place into heaven. It's not even close. End quote. Here's the scary thing. He's not alone. You talk to person after person after person. People truly believe that they're going to earn their way into heaven. Another reminder. Kindness will never get you into heaven. I'll never forget traveling to Louisville, Kentucky with my dear friend Wayne Pickens. We were at the Together for the Gospel convention several years ago. And one thing struck us that whether it was in a restaurant or whether it was at the venue itself or talking to people in the street or talking to people in the airports, any compliment that you would give someone, it's as almost as if they had rehearsed it. We would hear this. Oh, you're so kind. Oh, you're so kind. Or oh, you're so kind to say that. Oh, you're so kind to do that. And both Wayne and I picked up on it and we said, we don't hear that very often on the West Coast. In fact, I don't think we ever hear that. But in Louisville, oh, it's you're so kind. And it made me think of this, that as wonderful as it is to have someone offer kindness to you, kindness will never get you into heaven. Philanthropy will never get you into heaven. Doing good in your community will never get you into heaven. Here's one that I never needed to worry about. Good looks will never get you into heaven. A lot of you can relate to that one, right? It's like, hey, man, but sorry. Good looks won't get you into heaven. A slick portfolio, which is another thing I really don't understand. But if you have a slick portfolio, if you have lots of zeros in your Quicken account, your portfolio will not get you into heaven. The right family won't get you into heaven. This is what the the Pharisees failed to realize. This is what the Jews failed to realize. If you're in the right family, it won't get you into heaven. Christian service or ministry, that won't get you into heaven. Religion will never get you into heaven. And so you ask, how is it do we receive the righteousness of God God, if works will never justify me? How then are sinners justified? How can a sinner stand in right relation to the holy God of the universe? And the answer is found in verse 22. Look at it with me. Paul says, the righteousness of God is. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all 
who believe, for there is no distinction. The answer to the, the, the how question is this, is that we receive the righteousness of God through faith alone. We receive the righteousness of God through faith alone. I want to give you some subheadings in advance and so you can navigate your way through this message. And here are the points that we'll look at in some detail. Number one, I want you to see the context of faith. And we'll take a, a quick look at church history. Then I want you to see the crux of faith. Then I want you to see the components of faith. And then finally, I want you to see the complaint of faith. And so the historical context, the crux of faith, what it is, the components of faith, and then some common complaints. And notice with me first, the context of faith. In order to understand the context of faith, we need to go back over 500 years during the days of the Protestant Reformation. Because for hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years before the dawning of the Protestant Reformation, the world had been shrouded in darkness. It's why we call that period in church history the Dark Ages, the the medieval age of church history. The world had been shrouded in darkness as the light of the gospel was veiled by the sacerdotal system of works-based righteousness in the Roman Catholic Church. And dare I say, the works-based sacerdotal system that the Roman Catholic Church still embraces. Nothing has changed. There are two broad categories that motivated the reformers. During the days of the Reformation, one is what they referred to as the formal cause of the Reformation. The formal cause of the Reformation you will be familiar with because it is sola scriptura. Scripture alone. You see, the Roman Catholic Church held and continues to hold that they believe in scripture plus tradition. The reformers said no. Our highest authority is the word of God, hence the formal cause or sola scriptura. This concerns all matters of authority. But then there is the material cause of the Reformation. And the material cause of the Reformation you're also familiar with. We refer to this as sola fide or faith alone. And so the reformers held that sola fide was at the very heart and soul of of the Reformation. Martin Luther said that justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Translation, if you get justification wrong, you lose your soul. You will be judged in hell for all eternity. These are big potatoes. These are big marbles that we're dealing with. Luther went on to say, the article of justification is the master and prince, the Lord and ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. It preserves and governs all church doctrines and raises up our conscience before God. Without this article, the world is utter death and darkness. Once again, you get justification wrong. You are headed for big trouble. There are things in the church that we can agree to disagree on. Here's one issue. And we're, we're probably divided across the, the sanctuary this morning on this one. The matter of eschatology. Some of you believe that Jesus will return before the tribulation. Some of you believe he'll return in the, the, the midst of the tribulation. Some of you believe that he will return after the tribulation. And the rest of you, you're probably pan-tribbers, right? It'll all pan out in the end. But we all have one of these positions. Do you know that we can embrace one of these four positions and still stand united in Christ? I don't know if I've ever said this publicly and it's still, uh, I don't know what word I can use. I want to say irritate, but I'll get in trouble if I say that. Oh, I just said it. Um, I was the lead candidate at a church before we came to Christ Fellowship and we were ready to pack our bags and go there. But because I don't take the, hardline pre-tribulational stance that most Baptist preachers take. I was eliminated from the process. I don't get that. Do you get that? Because we can agree to disagree on these secondary issues. When it comes to the matter of justification, there is nothing to agree to disagree on. You either believe justification or you deny the doctrine of justification. 
John Calvin says this in the Institutes. The sinner received into communion with Christ is reconciled to God by his grace while cleansed by Christ's blood. He obtains forgiveness of sins and clothed with Christ's righteousness as if it were his own. He stands confident, confident before the heavenly judgment seat. Calvin went on to say that the article of justification by faith alone is the hinge on which true religion turns. I just like that so much. And so the reformers taught with the apostle Paul that we are justified by faith alone. This is the context of faith that we must understand in order to proceed wisely in unpacking this passage. Notice next though, the crux of faith. The crux of faith. If you would look at verse 22, Paul says this righteousness of God through faith. I want to focus on that word faith. It comes from the Greek word pistis or pistuo, which means the act of placing faith in something or someone. I want you to see in verse 22 that the object of that faith is very, very clear. That we receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus Christ that we know is the one who came to die on the cross for sinners. This is the one who we place our faith in. The the one who is referred to as the second member of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The one whom we place our faith in is God. Have you ever talked to someone in a cult? Whether it's a Mormon, whether it's a Jehovah's Witness, whether it's someone in Scientology. I mean, you name the religious sect, you ask them, you cut through all the fog and you say, let's talk Jesus. Let's talk Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? And you hear all kinds of very interesting answers. Some of them are even accurate. You hear he was a good man. You hear he was a prophet. You hear all kinds of nice things that they say about Jesus and will confess about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I always get to the end of the conversation and I look my friend in the eye and I say, but was he God? And at that point, you get all uh, all manner of responses. Well, he was a God. He was a God or he Tried to become a God. Or no, he was not God. He was merely a prophet. But I want to have you look with me at John chapter 1. And this is the verse that just is is an absolutely devastating verse. As you're sharing the gospel. And do we not want to share the gospel as evangelists in our community? Who is it who is called to do the work of an evangelist? You know what many Christians say? It's the pastor's job. The job of the evangelist. To do the work of evangelists is your job, and it's my job to do the work of an evangelist. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the preposition with means face-to-face, two-person distinction. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus was face-to-face with God. Notice what John says, and the Word was, someone yell it out. Very good. A little voice. That's wonderful. He was and is God. That is a devastating blow to any world religion or someone who comes to your door who says something entirely different. Jesus is God. Ken read from Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That is, he is the preeminent one. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Imagine now the baby in the manger. My friend this morning that said Christmas means it's Jesus' birthday. Love that. Remember that the babe in the manger, that babe in the manger is the one who fashioned the cosmos. He fashioned the cosmos. I've shared this story 
I just read an article the other day. It said basically one thing that is a weakness of pastors who stay at a church longer than five years is they keep sharing the same stories over and over again. Guilty. So I'm teaching a biblical worldview class at a public high school in LaGrande, Oregon. And we go to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm teaching these high school students that, that Jesus is the creator of all things. That afternoon, I get a phone call from an angry mother. You told my daughter that Jesus created all things. Jesus didn't create all things. The Father created all things. I said, do you have a Bible, ma'am? Yes, I do. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. And we read it together, and her response was, oh, Jesus, the babe in the manger, the God-man, he is the creator of all things. He is the one in whom we place our, our faith and our trust. And he's not only the creator, he is the sustainer of all things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he or Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Think about that just for a minute. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know how many sermons are in that verse? Wow. This is mighty, mighty reality. R.C. Sproul, who I spoke of in Veritas this morning, yesterday was the two-year anniversary of his death. This is a man who has influenced me so much throughout the course of my adult life. This is a man who almost single-handedly restored Reformed theology in North America and maybe even around the world. A man who was mightily used by God. Here's what R.C. said. He said, faith... Pistis, pistuo, is the instrument by which we are linked to Christ and receive the grace of justification. So I must ask and, and challenge you with this. Is the ground of your justification, is the way that you stand before a holy God a series of feeble attempts to earn brownie points with God or are you like so many people in our nation and in our city and our community who are just trying their very best to work their way to God? I can tell you that more often than not, when I challenge people with the idea of when you die, why should God let you into heaven? It's the question that D. James Kennedy coined before he went to be with the Lord. And when I say your good works will never get you to heaven, how do you suppose people look at me? They look at me like I'm nuts, like I'm nuts because it's, it's the simplest thing, but it's the most profound reality in the universe that we stand before a holy God by faith alone. And so this morning, have you placed your faith in the babe in the manger? Have you placed your faith in the risen savior? Have you placed your faith in the one who, who fashioned the cosmos and the one who sustains all things by the work of his hands? Move with me now to the components of faith. The components of faith. And understanding the components of faith is critically important, especially, I believe, in the West. And especially in America. Because there was a time in American history, and I, I don't want to date myself, but I think I can even remember this when I was a child. And I remember it quite vividly where the notion of biblical faith was, was readily understood and embraced even by unconverted people. And so the preacher would say, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And lots of people, converted and unconverted, knew what that meant. They knew that it didn't mean intellectual knowledge only. They knew that it involved more than an act of volition. Let me give an illustration. Do you believe, and let's just do a show of hands for fun. And if you really, if you're dogmatic about this, give me two hands. How many of you believe that an airplane can, can cruise at 30,000 feet in the air? Some of you are not raising your hands, and I'm concerned. Oh, ah, thank you. I see a few back there. So last week when Nate and I went to Denver, we get on the plane, and the first thing the pilot says is, Passengers, I'd like to let you know that we're going to be at a cruising altitude of 38,000 feet. 
38,000 feet. So if you were to believe that at one level, you must first embrace, and most of you said you believed it by virtue of the fact that you held two hands in the air. If you were to believe that this large tube with some rubber wheels, by the way, sold to the cheapest bidder, I always like to say that and just kind of, I said that to Nathan, and hope that someone behind me hears and they start squirming, right? (laughs) If you're to believe that this big piece of steel or whatever it's made out of and these rubber wheels can fly at 38,000 feet, the first thing you must embrace is the idea that it needs two wings. And I think we're all on the same page this morning, that in order to fly at 38,000 feet, you need to believe, here's the word, believe that a plane will fly if it has two wings. Now, at another level, you must have what you might call intellectual ascent. You see, first of all, that a plane needs two wings, but then you say, I not only see it, but I embrace it. Like, that is something that's deeply ingrained in me. It's like if you made a paper airplane for a child, and you can make it in such a way, which would basically to be, take a... a, a Oh, a, a toilet, toilet paper roll, right? And just kind of do that. Give it to a kid and say, there's your airplane, little boy. What would that little boy say? It doesn't have wings. He'd say, dude, that's not an airplane. It needs wings. So he embraces. He not only sees that it needs two wings, but it's a deeply held belief. An airplane needs wings in order to fly 38,000 feet. But here's the key. You can have knowledge two wings, you can embrace the fact that 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 airplane needs two wings to cruise at 38,000 feet, but there's a third kind of a belief that you must possess in order to say that you truly believe that a plane can fly at 38,000 feet. You must be willing to step onto that plane, sit in your seat, put your seatbelt on, and hold on for dear life as you cruise. If you're not willing to do that, you do not possess faith in that airplane. Are you with me? Doreen and I have a dear friend. She knows exactly who I'm thinking of. She didn't even know I was going to share this illustration. Do you know who I'm thinking of? She does. Our friend Natalie believes at one level a plane needs two wings to fly. She also embraces that reality. If we made her a paper airplane out of a toilet paper tube without wings, she'd say, that's not a plane. It has no wings. So she has those two components of faith. But you say, hey, would you like to go with us to Cleveland on a plane? Guess what she would say? No dice, no way, no way, Jose. I do not fly on planes. She does not possess faith in that sense in the airplane. Now, what does this have to do with the Christian life? There are three components of faith that we must possess if we are to truly call ourselves followers of Jesus. And there's no way around it. I have to give you three Latin Latin words, if that's okay. Number one, notitia, N-O-T, oh, there it is, N-O-T-I-T-I-A, notitia. That is the Two wings element of faith. You must, you must believe the very basics of the gospel message. Let me read it for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And the apostles tell us, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Pastuo. We must believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So there's that basic information, the two-wing part of the gospel. That Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day, God raised him from the dead and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. But then there's that second component where you say, you not only see the, the nuts and the bolts of the gospel, but you really believe it. You really cherish it. And here is the key. Do you know that demons have that kind of faith? They see the two wings. That is to say, they understand. They embrace the notion that Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, that he 
was crucified, that he was buried on the third day. He rose from the dead. Do you know every demon believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The devil believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they have that second kind of faith, that a census faith. They not only see the, the nuts and the bolts of it, but they truly embrace it. They know it's true, but here's what they lack. They lack fiducia. Fiducia. Fiducia is simply this. It is a personal trust in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must trust a person. We entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe on his name. Now, Luther spoke often about having a faith that was certain, the certainty of faith or the assurance of faith. And he said this, faith is and indeed must be a steadfastness of the heart, which does not waver, wobble, shake, or doubt but stands firm and is sure of its case. When the word enters the heart by true faith, it makes a a man as firm, sure, and certain as it is itself, so that the heart is unmoved, stubborn, and hard in the face of every temptation, the devil, death, and anything whatever, boldly and proudly despising and mocking everything that spells doubt, fear, evil, and wrath for I know that the word of God cannot lie, nor can God lie. And so we have seen this morning the the context of faith. We've seen the, the crux of faith and the components of faith. But look at one final element, namely the complaint about faith. In other words, why is the doctrine of justification by faith alone so offensive to people? I remember I was watching TV with a a gentleman several years ago and it was either a commercial or a or a television preacher i can't remember what but basically the gospel was shared that believe in the name of the lord jesus christ and you'll be saved and my friend said under his breath yeah if it were only that simple is it that simple it's that simple believe on the name of the lord jesus christ and you will be saved and so the complaint is this i am offended I am offended. Why? Because this person buys the lie that what they do will make them right with God. They believe their works are meritorious. The idea of receiving the righteousness of God through faith is not only absurd to the unbelieving mind, it is offensive. You're telling me all I need to do is believe? Hey, listen, I'm a self-made man. I earn a living. I earned my house. I earned my car. I earned a good reputation in the community. But not so with the living God. Here's a principle, one, two, to make note of. And that is that hard work or good intentions never merit favor in the eyes of God. Listen to several scriptures that will bear this out. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15 Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Why would Jesus say that? Because these guys that were involved in a works-based approach to the Christian life, they were making converts to that same worldview. Jesus says also in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall? You're like, what did he just say? Hey, Joe, did you hear that? What did he just say? Also in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be cleaned. It comes down to this, you look good, you smell good, you tithe, you do, do, do. You are 
proactive. You did everything Stephen Covey said you should do. You, you embraced the seven habits of the highly effective person. You did, did, did. You were on the committees. You were involved in ministries. You had faithful church intent, attendance. But you have not yet believed. And if you have not yet believed, you are not yet justified. And so how do we receive the righteousness of God? We receive the righteousness of God by faith alone. In our remaining minutes, I want to move forward by addressing the how question, which is also in verse 22. That is, who can receive the righteousness of God? And the answer is simple. In verse 22, the righteousness of God is available for all. It's available for all. Just as a footnote, if you ever hear a preacher say that the righteousness of God is only available to the elect, run. Because there are many who say it. The righteousness of God is only available to the elect. But look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who? All who believe. So notice two things. First, it's an invitation for all. And the scope of the offer is for all. The Greek word is clear here. It's a genuine offer to all people. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1. Come everyone who thirsts. This morning as we were singing. I was. Hark the. I mean my throat was so dry. Have you come this morning? Thirsty. The word of God says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. But here's the key. Even though the offer of the righteousness of God is for all, please remember, not all will be saved. It is a genuine offer to every tribe and every nation and every ethnicity and Both genders, male and female. By the way, there are not 59 genders. I was reading a book yesterday. There are over 50 genders listed. So can we remember as as followers of Jesus here in this place? There are two genders. Male, female, period. Now you go in the marketplace of ideas and say that. That could lead to a a bit of a conversation. But scripture is clear. There are only Two genders. And so even though the offer of justification is for all, not all will be saved. Notice also, it's not only an invitation for all. It is a command for all. This is something that I failed to realize as a, as a young preacher. You see, I, I got good over the years at saying it's, it's for everyone who will believe. It's for everyone who will believe. But it wasn't until I looked at Acts chapter 16 verse 31 that says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Eris, active, imperative. So I visit with a friend this week and I share the gospel with my friend sitting in my study here at Christ Fellowship. And I challenge my friend to to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's not only a friendly invitation. That is a command on high from the living God. So you as the evangelist have the weight of authority behind you as you tell sinners and invite sinners to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want you to think with me for a moment now about the deadly nature of unbelief. Because I, as I look out on the sea of faces this morning, there are two kinds of people. There are two kinds of people. There are those who believe and there are those who refuse to believe. And those who refuse to believe are ensnared by the sin of unbelief. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Listen to what Piper says about this matter. He says, unbelief is a turning away from God and his son in order to seek satisfaction in other things. You say, what does that look like? There are several markers that you can, you can measure quite simply to determine if you have an unbelieving heart. That is to say, instead of coming with empty hands, 
This kind of person comes with something to offer. They come with something to do, a deed to perform. They equate doing with believing. But as we have seen, you can work yourself to the bone and still go to hell. There's a focus on temporal things, a failure to obey Jesus, a failure to repent before Jesus, a failure to bank all your, your hope and future exclusively on Jesus. It's a failure to believe in Jesus. Some of you may have heard, but last Sunday, a pastor by the name of Tom Askell, a man I greatly respect, was preaching in his home church in Florida, and he collapsed on the platform. I believe I learned about it on Monday morning and heard that he was transported to the hospital unresponsive, unresponsive, and he ended up in the ICU, and he was there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I believe he went home on Thursday and beginning to recover. Well, his associate pastor asked him in the ICU when he was conscious, he says, do you remember your ride in the ambulance to the hospital? And he said, yeah, I, I kind of remember. He says, I was, I was really out of it. And he says, all I remember is that the, the EMTs were looking for his wallet. Find his wallet. Find his wallet. Finally, they found his wallet. And one of the EMT gentlemen said, get a social security card. We need to get that social security card. Then he said, what kind of a expletive deleted doesn't carry a social security card? My response was a smart person. But he called him a vulgar name. And here's what Tom said to his associate pastor. He said, I thought to myself, fear God. As they continued to drive, it was weighing on his heart. And from everything I can ascertain, he was close to death. He was in bad shape, but they continued to curse. And so he managed to get one of the EMT's attention. And he, he leaned down and Tom said to him, fear God. And the cursing stopped. And the associate pastor asked Tom Askell, what have you learned through this chain of events? I mean, you've been through a, a, a major experience in your life. And his response was essentially this. You would have to be crazy to reject the free offer of salvation that is yours in Christ. Amen. It's free. The greatest need of every sinner is the righteousness of God found in Christ. We are justified by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I concluded my study of this passage, my, my wife popped into my mind. And she has a really a wonderful story about how she came to faith in Christ. And she was attending the church that my uncle pastors, Montevilla Baptist in Portland, Oregon, and was part of the youth group. And one day she was at, this is a, just an awesome story. She's at Chuck E. Cheese of all places. And the youth pastor, Pastor Dave, asked her, Dreen, you've, you've heard the gospel. You've heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any reason why you would not receive the free offer of the gospel right now? Dream's response was, no, I can't think of any reason why I wouldn't do that. And so they prayed right there. She trusted Christ on April 1st, April Fool's Day. And her life was radically changed. And then I met her several months after that chain of events. You see, it's the simple gospel. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. My question is, are you here and you have not yet done that? You have not given the reins of your heart to the babe in the manger, the one who, who created all things and who sustains all things. It's a matter of turning from your sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. For the vast number of you who are followers of Jesus, I would conclude in the following manner. It's the word that keeps coming back to me over and over again that I mentioned also in Veritas, and that is marvel. Marvel that you have been justified by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I was praying this morning, I was confessing my own sin in my familiarity with the doctrine of justification. 
I love the doctrine of justification, but sometimes I'm so in love with the doctrine that it's easy to neglect the relationship associated with the doctrine. And so as I poured out my heart to the Lord, I asked for this church family that we would not be inoculated by the truth, that we would marvel at the truth and we would recognize all that we have in Christ. We are free. We are forgiven. We are children of God. All our sins, past, present, and future have been dealt with at the cross of Christ. And then finally, may I encourage you to not only marvel that you have been justified by faith alone, but meditate on this great reality. Meditate on the great reality that you have right standing with God. My prayer this morning is that someone would leave and they would walk out to their car and they would realize for the first time, I am now complete in Christ. I have been forgiven by a holy God and I didn't do anything. And you would come to the realization that even the act of faith, that the act of faith is also a gift of God. The only reason I could believe in Jesus when I was seven years old, the only reason I could believe in Jesus is that God in his mercy and sovereignty Gave me the gift of faith. Otherwise, I never would have done it. I wouldn't have desired it. I wouldn't have delighted in it. I would have had no inclination in that direction. So may I encourage you to marvel in all that you've received in Christ and to meditate on the great reality of the doctrine of justification by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for these reminders. Thank you for the power of your word for this mighty doctrine. It's been so neglected and glossed over by many over the years. Lord, we want to not only highlight it this morning, we want to marvel at it. We want to marvel at the, the, the amazing cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Jason prayed earlier, we, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for freedom. We thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that we don't live the Christian life on our own. We, we rely on the indwelling Holy Spirit. So thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. May we learn more of the Holy Spirit in, in the days to come, especially as we move into Romans chapter 8. We're so thankful for the, the amazing work that you're performing corporately and also individually here in our church family. And the Lord, for those who are not yet Christians, may today be the day of salvation. May someone cry out, God, I realize that I have violated your law. I realize that I have been trying to earn brownie points with you, and I understand now that I can never stand in right relationship with you except by faith alone. And so I turn from my sin, and I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I realize this is a, a divine invitation, and I realize it's a divine command. And so I submit, I surrender to you. Make me a new person. Forgive me of all my sins. May I walk to my car this morning as a newly justified person, a person who has right standing with God by faith alone. In Jesus' name, amen.